The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, December 18, 2023, as we record this new episode. We are still waiting for meaningful White Sox roster moves. The White Sox traded recently DFA'd reliever Johan Ramirez to the New York Mets for a whopping $100,000. But while we wait for those meaningful White Sox roster moves, I thought it would be a good time on the podcast to take some deep dives into topics about the White Sox and what we could be looking forward to in 2024. With Chris Getz in charge and overhauling most of the White Sox front office, one area that we have been harping on for years Years is the lack of depth that Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams built during their tenure with the White Sox. Basically, stay healthy was the strategy with the exception of April to June 2021. Whatever depth the White Sox had was bad, well below replacement value. Just how bad was the depth in 2023 for the Chicago White Sox? And how can they possibly overcome this weakness in the near future. Joining us is a first-time guest. He wrote about this very topic while researching percentage of war each MLB team gets from their opening day 26-man roster on Fangraphs.com. Welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. It's Ben Clemens. And Ben, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. The article you wrote on Fangraphs is called How Not to Build Depth. And you were originally researching how much each team's playing time in war comes from their opening day rosters, hoping to find an interesting trend. Walk us through your research and the moment you noticed something wasn't looking right when you saw the White Sox numbers. Yeah, so I'm always kind of interested in this because I look at rosters every year and I'm like, oh, this team will be good. Oh, this team will be bad. And then the season plays out and most of the time it doesn't go like that, you know, like no team is ever healthy. And one thing that's really hard to look at for me, like, cause I'm a baseball writer, but I'm a baseball fan too. And I look at rosters and try to guess how good teams will be. Cause like, that's just how I experience it. And I never, never account for like the first 10 guys from the minors. Right. I just always, my brain doesn't do it right. It's hard. 
And so I thought, eh, you know, like we're fan graphs, like we do a lot of quantitative looks at these things that are kind of squishy, like let's try it. And so I just started taking rosters, taking opening day rosters and taking actual production by teams and figuring out like, oh, how healthy were they? And how much did that cost them basically? Like how much production did they need to get from the other dudes who weren't really part of their plans? Or maybe maybe should have been part of their plans, but weren't on the opening day roster. Because lots of teams do prepare for this. Like you'll never convince me that the Rays aren't thinking a lot about, you know, hey, when our second baseman gets hurt, how are we going to shuffle it around? Good point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I pulled up like, I think we have five years of opening day uh, roster data going back that I could get easily. I just chucked that in, stripped out like, those players and looked at how the rest did and then i had a lot of years and i was trying to figure out like well 2020 was bizarre gotta get rid of that 2021 was weird because no team knew who was healthy or not and then i saw the white Sox 2023 and i was like oh no i'm just gonna write about this like, like <laughs> this is too strange um teams just like replacement level is a concept of like you know the guy you can get from triple a is true but most teams have a little bit more than that in triple a right they've got just the freely available guy, the guy you can get off the waiver wire. And then they have some nice prospects who they might call up or some emergency pitchers who are the sixth best guy, but better than a replacement guy. And then there's the White Sox who gave a, an average chunk of playing time to their non-roster guys and got negative wins above replacement from it. And there's just no, there was no other team in our data set that was like that. And so I thought, well, that's strange. Like, it's not like I combed like I took a comprehensive amount of data from all of baseball history, but modern teams, this just doesn't happen to like, they don't, the worst run team I can think of, of the last decade is the angels. Cause they're just squandering these superstars and they traded for all the white Sox players who are all terrible there. <laughs> and they still did better than replacement level with the guys that they added mid season. Like that should have been the perfect storm of like, you go out and trade your useful depth for all these players who come in and they're all bad. They actually cost you wins. They should have been the team that did really badly with their midseason replacements, and they still did better. And so it just got me looking at the White Sox. Like, what is going on here? Yeah, in your article, I had no idea the Chicago White Sox were the second healthiest team in Major League Baseball last year. Now, Shocking. With, with your research, I mean, again, from a White Sox perspective, it's like, man, we can't trust – no one could trust Eloy Jimenez. Yohan Mercado is going to miss months, if not weeks – uh, during yeah. the season, like weeks would be optimistic. Uh, yeah. Tim Anderson dealt with really tough injuries all season long. Uh, and they were their second healthiest team in baseball. That kind of pops our perception balloon. Let's call it from a white Sox fan perspective. Did you find a trend between health and winning percentage with this research? Yes. Um, yes. And it's, hard to strip out like health versus resilience to injuries mm. but yeah the healthier teams do better and like that's just the case i didn't find a lot of a trend year to year um about being healthy one year and being healthy the next so i think a lot of the reason that the white Sox, um by that baseball prospectus met metric did really well in terms of health this year is because the guys who got hurt weren't playing well like before they got hurt and so it's kind of like uh health in terms of production like Luis Robert had a pretty healthy season and he was the best player. And it, it just comes down a lot to things like that, that if your health, if your best guys are pretty healthy, you'll do well by like quote unquote games lost to injury, but there's not much correlation between that year to year. So just because you're healthy one year doesn't mean you should count it the next year and vice versa. 
Hey, the, the White Sox fell into that trap, uh, <laughs> especially when Kenny Williams was in charge. The uh, strategy, basically stay healthy, was a team motto for, yeah. for many, many years for the White Sox. So you mentioned Luis Robert, and I want to bring him up because from the 2023 opening day roster, uh, from your research, White Sox players on opening day from that game played in 74% yeah. of the season. And this is the eye-opening when I was reading your article, Ben. The opening day roster produced 102% of the team's war for the season. Yeah. Explain that to our listeners that they haven't gotten a chance to read your article on Fangraphs yet. Like, what does that mean? So here's how I think about it. The guys who weren't on the opening day roster for the White Sox, the guys who were on the opening day roster were pretty good. You know, they were there were some good players. Obviously, there were some bad players too, like White Sox second base, White Sox left field. These are just like classic, they'll never figure it out kind of positions. Um, but they had some good players. And they were, if you count like health plus the amount of players they just sent out and trade, there's Openers did about the same as everyone else's, like right in line. But that meant they had to give 3,000, you know, batters faced or plate appearances to guys who weren't on the roster. And like you do this every year. Like that just happens. 3,000, uh, like, you know, times at bat. Yeah, it, it's a bunch. It's like five regulars worth. And that happens every year. Like you're just going to have to do this. Those guys were below replacement level for the White Sox. Like they were worse than freely available talent. For 3,000 plate appearances. That's it's just, uh, it's just galling. Like, that's so much to get so little from. And you have to do this every year. No one's ever that much healthier than this. It's not like this year, the White Sox were like, oh my God, like, we've been getting 200 plate appearances and now it's 3,000. No, it's like this every year. Like, no one is ever that healthy. And you're going to have, you know, just random short IL stents. You're going to trade guys. Guys are going to underperform and get sent out of the minors. And yet, like, like knowing that coming into the year and not having like an undue burden. So one thing that could happen is just everyone gets hurt. You know, the entire rotation gets hurt. Your best three hitters get hurt. And you're like, oh, like we're way deep into the minor league depth charts. And like we're playing four different waiver claims every day. Yeah, okay, fine. Those teams sometimes struggle. But this wasn't that. This was like business as usual. And the best players didn't even get hurt. So like you didn't have to replace the spots that would that would hurt you the most. <laughs> you just couldn't do it. It, it's, it's like unspeakably strange. Like, and it wasn't even just bad luck. It was just bad process. Yeah, because with your research, you posted, and for those that haven't gotten a chance to read it, go on Fangraphs.com, and I highly recommend it because Ben posted all the numbers, the percentage of games played from the opening day roster, and the percentage of WAR from that opening day roster. What jumped out to me as well is that the Arizona Diamondbacks, who won the National League pennant in 2023 and seemed to be like the end game on how Chris gets in this new White Sox front office, what kind of franchise they want to emulate moving forward, wasn't that far off from the White Sox numbers. The Diamondbacks opening day roster played the same amount of percentage of the White Sox opening day roster, 74%. And yeah. the opening day roster for the Diamondbacks had 96.5% of their war, which is also a big number. The difference between Arizona and the White Sox is overall team war. So the Diamondbacks had a team war of 32.7. Position players were 19.7 of that. The pitchers were 13. The White Sox, 13.3. The position players, which I want to circle back to in a moment, 3.3 yeah. war. 
and the pitchers for the White Sox were at 10 war. So the Diamondbacks almost had two and a half times more war than the White Sox did. Yeah. Back to the position players, Ben. Luis Robert Jr. was a five war player on fan graphs, which means every position player for the White Sox total was worth negative 1.7 war. And so that, Rob, um, yeah. and Jake Berger's 1.4 of that. So they're, yes, they're actually worth negative three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. If you if you added Jake Berger, everybody else of the White Sox was minus 3.1 war. So Ugh. Robert by himself was worth 151% of the White Sox position player war and was worth 36.5% of the White Sox team war in 2023. That should have helped his MVP case. Uh <laughs> yeah, he was awesome. And they weren't. No, nobody else was. So for us at Sox Machine and general White Sox fans everywhere, it's not like the White Sox have done a terrible job of building depth. They have. But we have questions, Ben, about their ability. And these are serious questions about the position players alongside Luis Robert. This doesn't just seem like an extreme case of stars and scrubs, to your point, where even yeah. mediocre teams that are 500 have four guys that could be all-star worthy. It feels like it's Luis Robert. For the time being, Dylan Cease and maybe 24 guys that are probably better suited to be in AAA. Like, is that what the numbers speak to you when you are looking at this White Sox issue? Yeah. I mean, one way you could look at this, like, lack of depth is that the White Sox just have those depth guys that every other team has on the roster to start the year. So, like, the guys that are other teams 31st through 40th, if they're the White Sox 11th through 20th, then you're going to get the same effect. It's going to look like the backups they have are really bad. But the problem is they just need better guys to push. Like, going down here, like Zach Remillard. Was he on the opening day roster? I don't think so. No. No. But, like, he should be. He was, like, maybe okay cast. But Elvis Andrews, like, I hate to say it, but Yohan Moncada's production. Like, those guys are guys you'd prefer to call up from the minors to fill in rather than just be part of your, like, the plan, like plan A. And the Diamondbacks and actually also the Braves are a good example of how you can make like paper thin depth work. Just have your good players be good, you know? Like yeah. like Corbin Carroll, Luis Robert, let's like even them out. But then you got to have some other good guys and you got to have multiple top flight pitchers because you saw in the playoffs, the Diamondbacks really were thin. Like that wasn't fake. It's not a trick of the numbers. They were like reduced to bullpen games a lot. They didn't have like a lot of depth and whenever there were any injuries, they just couldn't replace it. And that's even with going out and trading a decent number of people at mid trading for a decent number of people at mid season, like you can do it. And the Braves won 104 games while doing it, but you really need the top to be good. Like it's kind of an either, or like if you have really good depth, like the Rays, you probably don't need, I like the Cardinals kind of do this too. A lot of years, you don't need to be really at the very top of the league and top end talent. The Dodgers do this all the time. They just have a ton. I mean, they're at the top of the league and top end talent too, but you really need to either have great depth or really good stars and health. And look, if, it, if you're missing both, that's tough. Like, I, how do you fix that? Yeah, I think that's the question that Jim and I and everyone on Sox Machine has been trying to answer because that's what is facing Chris Getz right now, at least in the short term. When Jerry Reinsdorf, who turns 88 in February, is like, hey, I don't have many years left on this planet. I'd like to win again or experience winning again. Like, that's the short-term problem for the White Sox is you're yeah. coming off a 101-loss season. 
And and you mentioned the lack of depth. A reminder, podcast listeners, the Charlotte Knights, the AAA affiliate for the White Sox, in the second half last year were 18 and 56. That's a winning percentage of 243. Like you could even make the argument that the players had in AAA shouldn't be in AAA. <laughs> they may not it should probably be in baseball for a lot of those guys. Like that's just where the depth problems continue to go further and further down the road for the White Sox. And of course, you guys have Eric Loggenhagen, who does a terrific job covering the prospects. There's some hope. There's Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos, but the White Sox obviously need more. And this is going to be my follow-up question. We know the White Sox do a terrible job of this, and you touched on a couple of teams that do a pretty good job of overcoming razor-thin depth. Which Mm -hmm. teams, based on your research, do the best job of building quality depth that us and listeners can research and how they and learn more about their process. So when we write and we talk about the White Sox, we're pulling from teams that actually do this well. Yeah. So last year, the Tigers did a really good job, but essentially what happened is they hit on some guys who weren't on their opening day roster. Like looking at this kind of one year at a time is always going to be a little bit like prone to, Oh, like, two guys who you called up did really well. Like the Reds did amazingly because Ellie De La Cruz and I mean, honestly, like half of their team at the end of the year wasn't on the opening day roster. So that's kind of a, a confusing one, but teams that build good minor league depth over time, I think, uh, you know, actually someone who does a pretty good job of it. And the problem was they just promoted them all to the majors this year is the Diamondbacks. Like in the two previous seasons before 2023, they were doing a great job of calling people up and having them work. What happened there is that they just fit all the puzzle pieces together, found their roster, and kind of traded away from it to fill the last holes. So that's like an option for how you can see this working well, where, oh, like, we don't have it yet, but like, we're building towards a great major league team by swapping a lot of our depth around. So for years, we show up as having like great depth. And then once we figured out the guys who are going to stick in the majors, once we've got Alec Thomas in place, and once we've decided Patel Marte is our second baseman now, lock in a bunch of spots and trade some of the rest of the depth away to really bulk up the major league roster. Mm -hmm. So that's one acceptable option. And it's, it's interesting because you can end up looking like the white Sox in terms of depth, but you do it by like starting with a really bolt, a really good system and filling the holes with those guys. Uh, Another thing that's done a really good job in a different way is the Rangers. And it's funny because you think, ah, the Rangers, they're not that deep. Like, like they're extreme stars and scrubs, but you can also add depth by trading. And the Rangers were great at that, where they just decided this year we're competing. So, like, we cannot let the fact that we have no depth and have had some injuries affect us. So they just went out and traded for new depth. Like, that's acceptable. It, it's not a long-term solution, but when you're competing and when you have a really good main roster, that's certainly one way to approach it. Uh, the teams that are, like, just the long-term best at doing this are basically the Brewers, the Rays, and the Dodgers. Those three... You can count the Cardinals if you want, but it's kind of a little different there. The Brewers, Rays, and Dodgers have like a, a plan that I kind of understand. And that's that they work pretty well in volume. Like they'll often trade for multiple players. They have really good development staffs that work particularly with pitchers and just say like, we're looking at what you're throwing. Like we could do this differently. We could do this differently. We could do this differently. And it doesn't work hundred percent of the time. I mean, the guardians fit this too. They, the, It's kind of weird with them because they spend so little money that it often looks bad, even though the process is good. But 
you work a bunch with your pitchers. You like try to find new stuff that can unlock a new level in them. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But like you do enough that you get more pitching depth. That pitching depth often gets traded for hitting depth. And it just makes it a lot easier to operate across the whole system. I don't know how the Rays are so good at developing hitters. Um, that doesn't really feel like a thing that du like duplicates across systems as well. Uh, the pitching stuff seems like easier for me to predict and easier for me to say like this team's going to do a good job of it. But between like like always trying to trade for volume and like kind of when you need to clear up your forty man roster, trade the guy for like just multiple other pieces that could maybe work and like try to win on the probability game. That's something that the Brewers and Rays especially do really well. Like they start with some decent players. They tend not to overspend when they add. They both add. Like they both trade prospects for major leaguers every year. But they, they try not to overspend on those. They try to always trade for volume when they're trading off their 40-man roster. And they put a lot of money into pitching development. Those are like, if I were starting a team, I mean, don't hire me to start a team. That seems silly. I'm an <laughs> internet writer. But like if I was going to, I would focus a lot on those. Like those just seem like three categories that the good teams do. The good teams at depth building. Like there's other stuff to do that can make you good. But if you want to build depth, like put a lot of money into pitching and put a lot of thought into when you trade guys off your 40 man. More with Ben Clemens, including questions from our Patreon supporters next after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We did get some excellent questions from our Patreon supporters, which again, you can sign up at Patreon.com slash Machine. The first Patreon question that we got was from Bob Squad. And to your point, like how to build quality depth, Bob's question is, do you think it's possible for a team to build actual depth through minor league free agents and non-roster invitees? I mean, yeah, uh, I don't think you, it can be your whole strategy, but I think that if you are doing this seriously, like that's a really good way to do it. That doesn't necessarily get captured by my method because if the non-roster invitees make the roster, you know, then, then they're on the roster. And so they count for my, uh, my A squad. But I think that's a really smart thing that, again, like good teams do this every year. And especially with pitchers, like it's a lot easier to construct a bullpen out of particularly non-roster invitees than like just trying to do it with your system. If you can sign six non-roster invitees, see what each of them have, like relievers are good for a year and then they're bad for two years. And then they like change their finger position by a quarter of an inch and they're great again. I think that's quite smart. 
And additionally, like with all the tools we have now, like high-speed cameras in the bullpens and, you know, radar data, or I guess it's now camera data, but this incredibly detailed pitch flight data that you're getting three seconds after a pitch is thrown, you can look at a reliever and say, oh, he got it again, like fast, like much more quickly than you used to be able to. They're not doing what I did for years as a fan and going like, oh, this guy had great spring training numbers. Like he's striking out a lot of people. Let's see if they were like single A guys who are on the spring training roster to give the good guys a break. You can just like literally measure the pitch and say like, oh, wow. He's like, that slider's moving more than it used to. The grip we talked to him about worked. And that has made it a lot more feasible, I think, to build via non-roster invitees. Minor league free agents, yeah, I mean, you should do it. But the expected return there is kind of low. Like, yeah, if you hit on one one a year, like, awesome, good work. And that's what that's what's bugged us at Sox Machine, especially in 2021 and 2022, Ben, is that Jim and I would point out the White Sox spent the, the largest payrolls in team history, over 190 yeah. million, over 180 million. And Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams agreed to spend over 40 million of that on relievers. And yeah. when the White Sox had issues in the corner outfielder outfield spots, they had issues at second base that just continued to add relievers. I, I really like your answer because I agree with Ben Bob's squad. We see it all over Major League Baseball, especially like the teams you mentioned, Tampa Bay. The Yankees do a great job of this. They find yeah. your AAA guys and they'll use a Rule 5 pick or you cut them and they sign them immediately and they could use them for 30 to 40 innings and they produce for that am little amount of innings. But it's far cheaper to do that than give Kendall Grayman $8 million <laughs> yeah. to, to, to pitch 60 innings in a season. So I, I really like your... Answer, Ben and Bob, I, great question. Another great question we got comes from John Phillips. John wrote to us, the White Sox have emphasized on enhancing the defense with their moves this offseason. Paul DeYoung, Nicky Lopez, uh, Max Stassi to a point. Does this translate to more wins when problems with pitching and the offense remain if the White Sox just solely try to improve defensively? Um. So holding everything else constant, yeah. I actually think that defense is a pretty good way to handle lack of pitching depth because it just it concentrates the way that you prevent runs away from your pitchers. And <laughs> it makes it hurt a little bit less that your pitchers like can't strike anybody out or walk too many if you're converting more double plays, if balls in play are less of a problem for you. I think it's a good plan. Um, yeah, but then you said Paul DeYoung and Nicky Lopez. So like, you know, look, I'm a Cardinals fan. I love Paul DeYoung. He's not good. Like... But when Paul DeYoung is your A plan, like, that's a real problem. He's like a D plan at this point, unfortunately. Um, like, good defender, not a great defender. And if he can hit at league average, that's awesome. But what you should be saying is, we're going to bring this guy in, and we don't think he'll succeed. But if he does, great. Like, you shouldn't be planning for him to be your, like, like any part of your shortstop situation other than, like, we're hoping this works out. And... I don't know, like, like we were discussing at Fangraphs, like, should we cover this? Like, are we, it's a major league contract for Paul Young. Like, should we make sure, like, that everything is confirmed, that the details are all right? That one was very strange to me. Nicky Lopez, I don't know, like, I, I made fun of him a little bit there, but he's a good player. Like, I, I think you'll, he's the kind of guy that a good but not great team that is a little bit stars and scrubs, he'll provide a lot of value. He plays great defense adds value on the base paths, is flexible. He can play second and short, like both really well. 
he's not a good hitter. Like he just has no power. But like, wouldn't you like to have Nick Madrigal back? It's not so different. Um, I think that's like he's a better defender than Nick Madrigal and a similar hitter, a worse hitter, but not like awfully so. I think he was a nice ad, and you can tell the Braves went out and got David Fletcher like to replace the Nicky Lopez role. Like they actually really do like good teams even use players like that. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Good way to shore up the pitching problems a little bit. If you just have a vacuum cleaner at second or short every day, but it's not, it does matter how well they hit. And it also does matter. Like, like it doesn't mean you don't need good pitching anymore. Just helps a little bit. And then as in rec wrote to us, aside from the white Sox during negative war, can you see a method or metrics the white Sox use to value talent? Um, yeah. yeah, this is a uh, tough question because when I read it, I was swirling in my head as well. Like, I don't, and you have a new front office here. Like, this yeah. offseason, Ben's been a lot of learning, especially when we were in the winter meetings in Nashville. Everyone keeps asking us, What do you think about Chris Getz? Well, yeah. he's really not new. He's been running the farm system the last six, seven years. But Josh Barfield is new. Brian Bannister is new. Right. We're learning here on the fly. So whatever we knew in the past under Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, we are assuming will be different moving forward for the White Sox. But maybe instead of just guessing what the White Sox have valued in the past for talent, yeah. do you know any other metrics that the quality teams are using outside of war to determine if they oh, actually yeah. have major league talent? I mean – one thing that I'll say, I'm pretty sure everyone is doing at this point, is not just looking at minor league statistics and college statistics to get an idea of who to draft, and not even like adjusting for competition and doing that, but getting raw measurable data from the minors. Yeah. So I do this uh, this series where I try to find unheralded minor leaguers who are going to break out. And, you know, like this used to work very well. Like you could just look for guys who are really producing who scouts don't like for some reason. And you would just say, like, I think these guys will hit. Um, Carson Sestouli, who used to work at Fangraphs, basically predicted Mookie Betts hitting when everyone was like, nah, he's just too small. And, like, obviously that worked out very well for him. Um, but you can't do that anymore because teams aren't dumb. And guys who produce well in the minors and also have even reasonable batted ball data or even reasonable, like, swing and miss rates or pitchers with good pitch shapes, teams are finding that stuff out now. And like, they're just actually using all the data that you can look at in the majors in the minors and saying like, oh, like this tracks well to working well in the majors. Oh, like this guy is really good at like elevating, like pulling the ball when he elevates. And when he hits it hard in the air, he hits it really hard. Like maybe we should not pay too much attention to his minor league numbers this year. I think that's like the big step forward. Honestly, I don't know if like how Brian Bannister is going to work across the whole organization but he seems like a, a great example of someone who would do this. Like from everything I've heard from him as like, as him talking about pitching development, it seems like that's kind of the right way to do that. Yeah. Like I actually think war is a pretty bad tool for like ex anti evaluation, like looking at how things are going to go, like look at the constituent parts and figure out like which players have like a have produced in the past and B are doing things that tend to produce in the future. And I think smart teams are all doing this. Like, 
they have more PhDs on staff doing this than we have employees at Fangraphs. So like, I can't exactly say that I know what they're doing. Like, <laughs> right. They're putting a lot of effort into this, but yeah, like put a lot of effort into the, the raw pieces of the puzzle rather than what it looks like all put together. You can't ignore what it looks like all put together, but I think spending more time looking at like the discrete little things that guys do is kind of, it's not even the next wave anymore in scouting and development. It's the last wave. But I think a lot of teams are still kind of catching up to that. Yeah, I think I counted 12 biometric companies at the winter meetings in Nashville. Oh, yeah, they were and everywhere. Yeah, they're, they're there selling their services and their consultants and their technology to major league teams, folks. Like, I, we get this, we still get this argument at Sox Machine. Uh, too much science. Baseball is a really simple game. Man, if you are sitting with me in the winter meetings, eavesdropping on people's presentations, what teams are asking when interviewing future employees or people applying for jobs, it is way beyond that. It is a lot about the science and the technology of the game. Even colleges were there. Vanderbilt had people yeah. there taking meetings. Like I, I do think thing. it's cool that a lot of that is like translating the science back to like stuff that you always thought. Like a lot of the science is about like your stride length when you're throwing and how to teach pitchers that like, it's not like, Oh, we're just in a lab cooking up a different way to evaluate players. No, a lot of it is like how to teach guys how to throw to like get more velocity. And that kind of gets like thrown in the whole, like, Oh, too much science bucket. And like, honestly, it kind of is. Cause that's a lot of science for baseball. I like to think of it as like, you know, a kid's game, but come on, like all these guys want to throw harder. And you don't want your team to throw harder because you don't like science like that. That seems like a bad plan to me. Yeah, it's just that that's what coaches are for. They're there yeah. to make it. They they're, they are there to translate, not exactly. necessarily dumb it down, but like any sport golfers. How do you hit it farther? We have the Olympics coming next summer. How do you slash tenths of a second off your 100 meter? Like, yeah, this type of technology and research is used for sports across the board. It's just I know baseball's an older crowd. We still kind of get that argument from time to time. But the last thing I want to touch on, so this is all data from last year. And obviously yeah. we're trying to look ahead to 2024. And I love what you wrote. And you wrote, so if you're looking for a blueprint on how to get as little as possible to submit, supplement the guys you start with, you just have to follow the White Sox plan closely. Start with no minor league depth. Don't hit on any waivers. Keep your in-season trades focused on guys and who aren't ready yet. And for bonus points, play them anyway to rack up a bit of negative war. Very humorous. We got a big kick out of that because there's no paragraph that illustrates all the White Sox problems in one nutshell that you wrote, Ben, on Fangraph. So we appreciate that. But looking ahead in 2024, we talked about the lack of starters to build around Luis Robert. How big of an issue is the depth looking ahead to next season? All right. I, I will give you a pretty good metric that, uh, that, Fangraphs owner and founder David Appleman and I have been working on. We want to change our uh, like play uh, playoff projections off a little bit to in- incorporate depth more because it matters. And like doesn't matter exclusively. Like having good players is more important. But we started looking at what would happen if you just took the best player off a team and like reprojected their skill without that player. And we just did that for every team in baseball. And then we took the best two players off the team. And then we took the best three players off the team and the best four players off the team to kind of get an idea of how depth works. And for a one number way to describe it, it's kind of easy to describe it uh, with one number with war. So I'll use war. 
Like the Braves are projected to get 53 war from their like A team. But then if you slashed their best 10 players off, they'd only get 23 war. So like, that's a big move. That's the biggest gap from like your A team to your not A team. And this is um, pitchers and hitters. So just if the best 10 players on Atlanta, regardless of position, all disappeared like in the rapture or something, and they had to be replaced by what's on the Braves roster right now. I mean, it would hurt. Like that would really hurt. They'd lose as many wins above replacement as the angels are projected for in total. Wow. Um, And like, but that's how they're built. They're built to be really stars and scrubs and have a big high end. So now we get to the white Sox. The white Sox, a team is projected to be worse than the Braves, you know, complete B team. If everybody's healthy. And yet they still lose a whopping 16 war if they go down to their B team. Like they're, if you get rid of the first nine players in baseball, they and the Rockies are the worst two teams by far. But also they're the second worst team, eh, third worst team with the best guys. So they have this <laughs> awful combination of like a bad starting string, but also the drop-off is still huge. It's like, it's it's not good. Um I, I think that this is the kind of situation that you look at and go, I don't know what we can salvage. I think what you have to do is keep giving the guys who have kind of flamed out the, the Moncados and Jimenez's of the world a chance to get back. Like, there's no path here to being a great team if those guys are actually bad. It's just, like, there's too much invested in them. They're too big of a part of the team. There's not enough coming up from the minors in 2024 that's going to really contribute like, it's not fun, but it, this is just not going to be a like a great playoff team year for the White Sox, like no matter how they spin it, which I think means that you need to be using this year to figure out like what might work. And this is a similar thing to what I was talking about with like the White Sox and the Tigers and the differences between them. The Tigers, when they weren't having hitters work out, just kept trying new guys, kept trying new guys, try a different guy, try a different guy. And you know, it kind of worked for them, honestly. Like, they found some guys. And a lot of teams do this. They they churn through. They they sign a lot of non-roster invitees to spring training. They sign minor league free agents. They claim weight people on waivers and give them two weeks to just, like, try to hit. They bring up their guys who are hitting well in the minors, even if they don't project, like, good prospects, and just say, like, you know, give it a shot. Um, I think the White Sox should just be doing that as much as possible. Like, this isn't a situation that you can really fix with, like, one signing <laughs> like, like who would you sign to fix this unfortunately it's uh it's tough and but one thing that i think is a good lesson from all this is farm systems get a lot better in a year all the time mm-hmm. like guys just play better because the white Sox are bad now uh in terms of like particularly if you exclude montgomery um that doesn't mean they won't have good minor leaguers in a year so i think you need to start acting as if you're going to get good minor leaguers. Like you're going to presumably, since you just did a whole regime change ish and like brought in new coordinators and everything, you're trying to build within a different way. Let like, you got to assume that's going to work. If you're trying to figure out how to build a sustainable contender, like don't, don't start from that probably won't work. Let's find some more stars to pair with our scrubs because if it doesn't work, you're in trouble. I think assume that's going to work, start throwing spaghetti at the wall in the majors and like I wouldn't trade Luis Robert because I think it's really important to have some good players with continuity and like keep fans interested, but also keep players interested. I think a lot of teams like the A's 
one problem they fall into is that the team is so obviously bad that it's hard for the players to really give their all for a grind of a season. Right. Um, I do think it matters to have like good players and to win like more than zero games. The Royals, you know, basically spending to be closer to 500 this offseason, I think it's kind of smart. Um, like not to excess, but the idea that just like you can't really you can't really field a completely embarrassing team without lasting effects on your players. I think that it's hard to measure, but I I totally believe that to be true anyway. So what I would say is. Like, yeah, operate with the with the conviction that you're going to figure out the minor leagues and start just trying, guys. Give like give Jimenez a chance in the field, I think, even though it hasn't looked good because he's a lot more valuable as an outfielder. Like, assume Moncada is going to find a way to play third base and produce value. Like, keep trying more dudes. Um, I think pitching especially, they're going to have a lot of innings to fill, right? Yeah. Like, you can, you can bring in like cheap free agents, non-roster free agents, you can just try like your, whichever guys in your minor leagues did best last year. Like how much worse are they going to be than Lance Lynn was for, I mean, for the Dodgers too. It's not like he was only bad for the White Sox. Like it'll be fine. Like actually I, I'll give you an, a, a good example. Tukisu Toussaint was a great hit actually. Yeah. Like he was a waiver claim and I think he should be part of the rotation this year. I don't even think that's controversial. Like, like he might have kind of found it to be like a five and dive type guy that a good team could play. And if you weren't trying stuff like that, you would never know. So that was a nice move. Do more like that. And also be willing to admit when you're wrong uh, and just move on. That's tough for anybody. It's not yeah. limited to baseball. I have big problems with that. And like, here I am telling other people to do it, but yeah, be, be willing to admit when you're wrong and try new guys. Cause you got to hit a bunch to, uh, to build a good team from a bad starting point. And so, yeah, give yourself the best chance to hit a bunch. It wasn't your initial direction with the article, but again, you illustrated just how far Chris Getz and this newish White Sox front office has to go in building a winning team in the short and long-term. Ben, fantastic job. You can follow Ben on Twitter. He's at underscore Ben underscore Clemens. And of course, read his excellent work on Fangraphs.com. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the Sox Machine podcast. Absolutely. I hope to come on again sometime. This was really fun. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Socks Machine podcast. And now I'm joined by the managing editor of SocksMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, I've loved the conversation with Ben, especially about his piece on fan graphs, about the White Sox depth issue. And when I read that piece and it like reassured everything that you and I have talked about podcasting the last 10 years, because this depth issue has always been a problem for Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams when building out the White Sox team. And here's somebody on the outside, a writer of fan graphs that in a way proves that we weren't crazy for calling this out for the last decade and just on how the zenith of all these problems came ahead to, to last year. And even looking ahead, it doesn't look all that great for the White Sox on the depth front. What were your takeaways from what Ben wrote about 
and pointed out in his piece on fan graphs regarding the White Sox depth issues. Well, it's a post I wish I wrote because it feels like, yeah, we live this every day. Why didn't I write this? Why didn't we talk about the specific thing and notice how bad it was, uh, you know, among uh you know when compared to the rest of the league so you know first reading it was jealousy and anger and resentment but after that subsided you know i realized that like you know we're too close i think to write something like this so just like we live it every day and we've talked about all these problems like as they were happening as like romy gonzalez isn't working out as gavin cheats uh, keeps finding playing time positions he's not uh, qualified for. You know the you know every year Adam Engel being a guy, uh, on and on and on. So I think you know we have seen all of these individual instances occur, and we're pointing it out and we're dwelling on it and we're trying not to repeat ourselves too much. You know day in and day out, week in and week out on the podcast. So, you know, to take this, then a step back and write about everything we've been talking about is probably like a difficult ask or be like, yeah, we already talked about this already. We didn't talk about it in this specific way, but, you know, it feels like ground we've covered and yet, you know, Ben comes in and it's ground we didn't cover in that way. So it's very enlightening and like, I'm happy he wrote it because rather than linking to a whole bunch of individual instances of this discussion, we can just link to his post and say like, Here's the whole thing. Here's one link rather than, you know, 15 over the course of two years uh, that uh, does a lot tidier job of summing it up against the context of the league. Now, Ben had a, a couple of suggestions for the White Sox to overcome this mess because it is a, let's continue to call it a newish White Sox front office. Yes, Chris Getz is not new, but Brian Bannister and Josh Barfield are, and they have his ear right now in trying to formulate a new game plan and rebuilding. And let's call it what it is. The White Sox are rebuilding in 2024. Uh, he mentioned that the, the White Sox going into 2024, as we speak, the White Sox still have Luis Robert Jr. and Dylan Cease. Despite having those two, the White Sox have the third worst projected Major League Baseball roster. And Ben is recommending more roster churn to find guys and even risky plays like having Eloy Jimenez play more outfield because if Eloy could be better defensively, that increases his overall value because he's not, even if he hits better as DH, yeah, he could become like a two-war, three-war type of DH, but he doesn't hit that well to become a five- or six-war type of DH. The best chance that he has of getting that is playing in the field. Do you like that strategy of suggesting more roster churn and, again, playing with the idea of moving players like Eloy Jimenez back into the outfield? Well, with Eloy, I think it makes sense to play him in the outfield if he can do it physically. Like, I wasn't, you know, when he was playing right field or there was a plan to mix him in and out of the lineup there, I wasn't as opposed because he's hurt himself in the outfield. Yes, especially spring training, like, you know, the, the, the pectoral tear, but he's also hurt himself running to first base. Like he's, you know, it's not just defense and, you know, he's hurt himself in silly ways, like celebrating on home plate and everything like that. So uh, it, it just feels like every time he's written into the lineup card one way or another, like he's at a risk of hurting himself. So yeah, put him in the outfield and like, he might've hurt himself there, but he also might hurt himself like um, saying hi mom in the dugout, the way he's been going. So it didn't really bother me to have him in the mix there. And if the White Sox are keeping him 
and they are giving him a little bit of a tough love approach. And it seems like they are doing that a little bit in terms of the rhetoric of what Chris Getz wants to see in his lineup, uh, policing his offseason more and you know, doing offseason reports and going to the Dominican and such. Maybe they are uh, being a little bit more um, strict with them or on top of them or whatever to where like, yeah, you can play the outfield. You're hobbling a little bit. Uh, well, we're not going to you know, maybe push through through an obvious injury, but if you feel like you're just kind of, uh, you know, easing up a little bit on yourself. Like we might not tolerate that. We have nothing to lose because we're going to not, you know, we're going to decline your option anyway after the year if this doesn't go well. So we're just going to kind of shrug it you know, off. But uh, I can see them being a little bit less uh, sensitive to his, uh, I guess, habits or his, um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think what you would call it. Like not necessarily being soft, but maybe just being somebody who doesn't push it. We're got in a habit of not pushing it uh, because of like being hurt. And then like when he gets healthy, he's still not pushing it because that's just the speed he's used to operating on. So yeah, I, I think with him, move him around, see if he can get anything from him, see if he can expand his tool set, see if he can expand his trade value going into the deadline. If he stays healthy, if he doesn't stay healthy, that's basically the, been his M.O. for most of his White Sox career. So there is really isn't the downside now that the White Sox aren't competing. With the rest of the roster, yeah, I generally agree. And we've, and we've talked about it before with like Adam Engel being like the outfielder, the extra outfielder year after year. Danny Mendick being the extra infielder year after year. Not a lot of upside there. Feeling like they're not churning the 25th and 26th roster spots enough to look for that upside. And I think now that it's wide open and, you know, given how they were going through entire benches at various points last year, um, they did take some swings of that type of player, like Tuki Toussaint, like maybe the one guy who worked well enough, but like Clint Frazier didn't work. Corey Lee was really rough when they brought him in, trying to get him those at bats. Uh, you know, Zach Remillard was a flash in the pan briefly, but then got overexposed. Lenin Sosa hasn't been, you know, he's been like the opposite to where like it's been a really, really, really slow build towards something that might or might not be playable. But when they've tried to do this, you know, that I think that explains the other part of Ben's piece, just like terrible luck or like not, you know, they're flipping the coin uh, 15 times in a row and getting heads 14 times. Like, you know, it shouldn't be that kind of bad luck, but they're getting it or, or not the outcomes they want. So uh, I think they are trying, but yeah, with everything being wide open, if they are trading uh, Jimenez and if Colas is going to be kind of this fringe competitor then sure yeah open it up lots of you know that's why we talked about it last time with Johnny DeLuca being like the 25 year old outfielder like guys like him if they can get an extra outfielder who's crowded out uh as like the third piece in a Dylan Cease trade sure you know they have all the playing time in the world for somebody like him uh maybe upping their game a little bit to catch somebody who's still on the upswing, even if older limited versus guys who have bounced around for a few teams and still haven't found it because the White Sox don't seem to be a great landing spot for like the Clint Frazier's of the world where they just, you know, if they're not going to catch on elsewhere, they're probably not going to catch on with the White Sox, but like guys like Trace Thompson, like hopefully that whole thing is over to where uh, just, yeah. Hey, now that's my guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was my guy at one point too, but just like, you know, he's, it's over. uh, yeah, he's 32 now. Like, just there's there's nothing there. So, like, you know, at least five years younger. If they're going to 
Percy the Trace Thompsons of the world, you know, somebody a little along those lines. But I mean, like I'm looking at the roster last year, like Blake Honeywell or, or Brent Honeywell was that guy. Uh, Luis Patino was that guy. Like they took shots at those types of players on the pitching side, at least. And Toussaint was really the only guy who delivered anything usable. When it comes to roster churn, I think it works great when we're talking about super utility guys, maybe back into the rotation, definitely bullpen. Like that was a question we got from one of our Patreon supporters, Jim. And I agree with Ben. And this is something that we're also in line with, Ben. Uh, Don't invest $40 million into a bullpen because a reliever could have one good year, struggle for a couple of years, and then one random bullpen session where they change the grip on their pitches and all of a sudden they're back. Like you don't make multi-year high dollar amount investments into those types of players on your team, just turn them out, go through 10 different Mm -hmm. relievers. That could be your fifth through eighth guys in the bullpen. There's nothing wrong with that. Test your player development system. But when it also comes to roster churn, and I think Ben made a good point in the conversation that the White Sox just don't ever, they Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn never wanted to admit when they were wrong. And they still have it admitted when they were wrong. And this brings up the point, like the core guys can Chris gets, is this an area where he could demonstrate that he's different in that to avoid giving too many plate appearances in the starts on players that are quantifiably bad and the past, the white Sox refused to move on because, Hey, Just wait, look at the back of this guy's baseball card they produce at the end of the year. Is this something to watch with Getz? He's already displayed this offseason the ability to convince Jerry Reinsdorf to move on using the example of Tim Anderson. You would think so. Like, you'd hope so. You would think that would be his vision is if he's talking to Jerry Reinsdorf in the owner's suite during uh, games here and there that he would say, like, yeah, it's really tough watching these guys. If I were in charge, I would clean house or I would, you know, issue ultimatums or I would, uh, you know, have a much shorter leash on players or I would be more willing to platoon or knock guys down in the order. And uh, I could see Reinsdorf being amenable to that. We just don't quite know because he was a part of the previous administration. And if the White Sox were to hire somebody from outside uh, and, and he or she came in and said like, uh, you yeah, know, I'm going to look this over, but expect some changes. Like you'd expect that that, uh, that GM would have a mandate. You would think that that GM would be able to say like, yeah, we've watched these guys. We've, you know, my numbers people have said that uh, there's nothing here. Uh, Turn the page. This thing's over. Uh, Sell it for parts. Uh, So like with Getz being around, like he could still have some babies in this uh, roster to where like he's seen them develop. He's, you know, had, uh, time with him in the minors, like a Gavin Sheets type. Like that's, that's kind of who I'm wondering about. Like somebody like Gavin Sheets who has been healthy and productive all the way up the ladder. And then you know, has moments in the big leagues and struggles, but we're doing way more than anybody asks. And he keeps doing way more because he's healthy in game to do that. Does like Chris gets with his years long connection to somebody like Gavin Sheets still feel like a soft spot or still feel like, yeah, we need to reward this guy for his attitude. Uh, whereas like some other GM would come in and say like, nice, no, he's, he's not an outfielder. He's not a power hitter. Uh, he, you know, he's a bench bat at best. We got to get away from this. So that that's kind of where I'm, we're wondering, you know, Tim Anderson, I think with the money he's making easy calls, some of the calls that gets has made so far 
are those money calls um, and, and trying to cut uh, like Aaron Bummer is another one where just they don't need him for what he's being paid. So trade him and, and see what else can get rather than have another two months of a six plus ERA and lose his value further. So, you know, he's made those obvious calls or at least the ones where like savings is too large to ignore. But when it comes to these extra spots uh, and just the change for changes sake, you know, turning over spots without a firm idea of what's coming next. That's, I think, where we will see, I guess, how cold he is and not necessarily like, you know, mean about it or just impersonal, but just being able to separate what he's seen and what he's witnessed as a player development guy for guys who have developed, you know, and you might say that with air quotes, uh, while he's been around and ultimately turn it over to guys who are coming in from the outside guys who were Brian Bannister's idea or Josh Barfield's idea or whoever's idea, the biomechanics, uh, guy that they just hired, you know, his idea and having more openness to what's outside. The way I'm thinking, like, again, back to like the whole Luis Robert being five war and throwing Jake Berger. Jake Berger is a 1.4 war player with the White Sox. Those two are combined for 6.4 war. At the end of the season, White Sox position players, again, 3.3 war. Like it was Luis Robert, half a season of Jake Berger and the Charlotte Knights. That was pretty much the White Sox position player group in 2023. That includes guys like Andrew Benatendi, like Eloy Jimenez, and Yohan Makata, and Andrew Vaughn. Right now, we are, with Penn, putting those four on the opening day roster, probably in Penn, or permanent marker, going to be part of the opening day lineup for the Chicago White Sox when they start the season at home against the Detroit Tigers in late March. But how long do you give those guys in 2024 before you need to start seriously asking, are there better internal options, especially with Yoan and Eloy coming up on contract options? Mm -hmm. I think this, we should save this for a podcast episode because I think we could easily talk 30, 45 minutes about this particular situation, but this is me. I need more time. I'm thinking aloud here. Listeners, I need more time, Jim, to dwell on this particular topic, but how many games, how many more plate appearances do you give Makata and Jimenez if on Memorial Day weekend their OPS starts with a six, right? And if it's a six, mm -hmm. the White Sox are not winning because they don't have enough talent to overcome where Eloy and Yoan are supposed to be part of this core, supposed to be leading the effort on the position player front that if they're still hitting that poorly, if they're still performing that poorly, or they're on the injured list again, like it, the, the clock is ticking on this too. And the White Sox need answers, especially for 2025 and 2026, so they can figure out who they could build around Luis Robert with. Like that's kind of what I'm thinking after the conversation with Ben about roster churn. I agree with everything that you said about bullpen guys back in the rotation, the utility guys. That totally makes sense. Listeners, you've heard me for years complain about Rick Hahn's 40-man roster construction. I think it's I thought it was really poor when he was the GM for the White Sox. But the White Sox really need to figure out what they got in those four players. Ben Attendee, Vaughn, Jimenez, and Mikata. And 
you're paying them a lot of money. The expectations are they're supposed to help Luis Robert. But if these are all four zero to one war players, that, that's not good enough. And I think that's where you need to start doing some roster churn. And mm-hmm. the new newish White Sox front office just to help just, just has to tell Jerry this isn't working. These were bad decisions by the previous administration. We have to go in another direction. Yeah, I'm more fascinated by the Andrews, uh, just because the clock is ticking for uh, Moncada. Oh, Vaughn and Benatendi. Yep. I thought I thought maybe we were talking about Elvis Andrews. I'm like, oh no, I, no, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not so fascinated by Elvis anymore. Uh, but when it comes to like, you know, yeah, as you mentioned with Jimenez and Moncada, like they're on the clock. So like they're, you know, it may take months longer than you might think or weeks longer than you might think in terms of like move and turn the page. Like if they are like just, uh, sleepwalking through the season again, but ultimately like their club options and their ability to get out from under the contracts will determine the end dates for those two players with like Vaughn and Benintendi, this could theoretically keep going on for years uh, if they are just kind of okay players who don't really have trade value and are taking up like premium bat positions without premium production. And that's, I think, will be a bigger test of gets just seeing like if Benintendi is like another one-win season, he's under a contract for three years. Do they like just try to eat the contract and move on just because like he fits like he was kind of a one-year patch given a five-year contract for like the ambition that they had and now what the team is. Like he does not fit what the team currently is. By the yeah. time the White Sox are going to be good again, you can't count on him being anything special. So like it's just an odd fit. So do they try to trade him and eat 75% of the contract just to save a little bit of money and move on? Like I could see that being the case. Same thing with like Vaughn, like not necessarily uh, you know, eating a contract because he'll be arbitration eligible for the next few years, but another case where like they could keep plodding along and like getting okay production for five million, six million, eight million as his you know uh, salary trajectory rises. But do they keep do they want to? Yeah, neither of these guys sell jerseys, I think, to where like there's gonna be a fan uproar. I think they're just kind of there and you know, especially in Vaughn's case, kind of okay and has enough moments to where like people aren't on him because the the bigger problems are so much bigger that you can ignore Vaughn for a long time. But given the position he plays where offensive production really needs to stand out in order to mask other positions where you need the glove, I, I could see like the internal standards rising a little bit uh, with Getz in the new front office if they do think that we can find a cheap first baseman, we can find a cheap left fielder. Uh, it's everything else we need to work on where defense is uh, so much more important or we need flexibility, that sort of thing, and, and save the bat first positions for actual bat first players. Yeah, I need to, I need to let the Mikata Jimenez roster churn idea I need to think about that over the holidays, Jim, a little bit more before we have. I think, Don't you want to enjoy think, the holidays? No, I, I do. I do. But I'm expecting, you know, some type of White Sox news to come around. And again, uh, kind of a heads up for everyone <laughs> yeah. listening. Uh, I'm going to be missing like three weeks. So I'm going to be producing some podcasts before I head to New Zealand and Australia. That will be auto loading into your guys's podcast feed. So you have something to listen to while I'm on vacation and to also help out Jim. So he doesn't have this complete burden of running everything while I'm away. Uh, that's the beauty of content creation. You can do things that are not time sensitive and, and push it out. 
I think that's a good topic to just dwell on. And for listeners, definitely give us your guys' feedback in the comment section. I, I, I do want to talk this through because it is just fascinating. And that's where we are entering 2024, where we're like, I'm thinking, do the White Sox have to like John Danks, Eloy, and Yoan in 2024? Because they have to move on and figure out what the long-term answers are because it's not these guys. Like 2019 me would be floored hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> just I just like, like I, that's how bad it got. <laughs> yeah. I just picture you like at a holiday party and everybody around you is like singing and dancing, exchanging gifts. And you're just like stirring eggnog with a cinnamon stick, just staring through a tree with a blank face. Uh, dwelling on what Moncada and Jimenez haven't been. And I don't, I don't want that for you. You know, that pencil meme of that uh, guy in the corner of the party, like everyone's dancing and Mm -hmm. grinding on each other. And it's always like something funny. Oh, they don't know blank. That would be me. (laughs) They don't know the white Sox have a, Yohan Makata, Eloy Jimenez issue. Yeah. And maybe they don't, I just need to think about it more. But again, listen, it's Christmas. Yeah. Do you know it's Christmas? (laughs) Oh, Kwanzaa. Festivus, Hanukkah. It's the holiday season. Yeah, the holiday season. Uh, Let me think about it some more. But let us know your guys' thoughts as that will conclude this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Big thanks to Ben Clements for the first time he appeared on the show to join us. And again, we have the link on the podcast page at SoxMachine.com if you want to check out his article regarding this depth issue for the Chicago White Sox. But if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcast episodes into our YouTube channel, which you can watch at youtube.com slash Machine. If you do watch our videos on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button. We greatly appreciate it. And you can follow us on all the social media platforms. We are at Sox Machine. You can follow me at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have special events like the curling event we're going to be having in February, they get to partake in that. And they're the first ones to be notified. There's going to be some updates coming up regarding the road trip this summer in Kansas City that our Patreon supporters will be the first ones to be notified about. Keeping that on the DL, except for our Patreon supporters, you guys, again, are going to hear about that. So if you enjoy our work and you want more from Jim and I and everyone at Sox Machine, go to patreon.com slash and sign up today. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.